I want to begin by just telling you an experience uh, that Elise and I had a few years ago. We visited the national parks in the lower part of Utah. They're called the Mighty Five. There are five beautiful national parks in this lower uh, area of Utah that often go unnoticed by the majority of Americans, uh, but they were discovered and they're beautiful places to visit over and over again. Probably the most popular place to visit, it's closest to the interstate, is Zion National Park. And there are many places to go. You can spend the night in the park, beautiful rock formations that you can see. And one of the most popular places, especially for young people, is a place called Angel's Landing. Go ahead and bring that up on the screen. Uh, I want you to go ahead and look at this picture as I describe uh, as best I can uh, this place where you can go hike. There are many hiking trails that you can go to. Um, but as you drive through the park, uh, you actually have to park your car on the outside. The shuttle bus will take you in unless you have reservations to stay there. But uh, many places to go as you are within a canyon most of the time. But this place called Angel's Landing is especially popular among younger people. Uh, you can put on your hiking shoes and you can hike up uh, a few miles uh, just to get up to the summit of this area where you continue to hike. Uh, Lisa and I hiked just part of it. We just hiked the lower part. It did not go on this elevation gain. But if you get to the very top of it, you can see a beautiful view of Zion National Park. You can see these colorful rock, uh, orange and red formations. You can see the beautiful trees that grow out of the uh, rocks in that area, the beautiful blue sky you can experience. You can experience uh, the beautiful, uh, crisp nature of the air that's there. Just a beautiful place to visit. And you can walk up there to Angel's Landing. I've told you all about the beauty of the place, but if you're looking at this picture, what are you focused on after looking at it for a little while, if you're going to hike up there? What do you notice? It's a long way down. It's a, long way down. <laughs> it's a little steep. That's why Elise and I did not go any higher than we did. But the National Park Service allows you to walk up there. They provide a chain that you can hold on to, but if you see in this a picture of this young man, if you let go of the chain and you act in a fast and loose manner and you uh, go up there inebriated and you're not caring about what you're doing, what's going to happen? You're going to fall. And the statistics on death there are awful for those who have fallen. Every person has died. It's a long way to the bottom. I do not know why the National Park Service allows you to go up there. They've had people falling, but no one's fallen accidentally. I looked up all the cases and the circumstances around people falling. It was all because someone was intoxicated and they went outside of the barrier or they were goofing around up there and they walked someplace or they acted in some way they shouldn't and they experienced the consequences of doing so. But imagine me telling you to go visit there and telling you all about the blue sky and the beautiful scenery but never telling you about the fact that you could fall. Sometimes we just have to deal with things that are a painful reality. If you ever fly on an airplane, you're all excited about where you're going to go visit, whether it might be Hawaii or traveling across the country or to another country in the world. But inevitably, before that plane takes off, you have to hear what? The safety instructions. And if you're sitting near any exit row, you have to hear that in the event of a water landing, that's a nice way to describe a crash, a water landing, crash in the ocean, 
you're going to be designated helpers. And you have to verbally agree. In fact, if you don't verbally agree, they move you. That you've got to help people get off this plane. It's always a reality check. And you pick that little card up in front of you. You kind of look at it a little closer. And, but you're confronted before you fly with the reality that something very bad could happen. And I think in our spiritual realm, we have to look at the very bad that could happen. And this is difficult. The entire two weeks I spent kind of preparing this, I didn't enjoy a moment of it. It was tempting in many times, but let's just plan another lesson. Or why preach on this? There were no songs to suggest to Nathaniel to talk about what is simply the reality of hell. We're going to talk about it this morning. Good, Nathaniel. Thank you. And next week, we're going to talk about what is this place called hell in the Bible. And then next week, we're going to talk about who will be there. This is probably the most uncomfortable subject you could ever talk about, let alone within the realm of the Christian faith. Here's the way hell is dealt with. Uh, Many times it's responded to with humor. The Far Side cartoons always pictured someone in hell in a humorous way, I think, to deflect the painful reality, the possibility of this place. Maybe people use it in profanity in this humorous way. Oh, you can go to blank if you do that. Things like that. We dismiss things a lot of times that are uncomfortable simply with humor. Uh, many respond to this subject, even Christians. In fact, most notably Christians. With avoidance. We just don't want to talk about it. It's never been requested as a sermon, as a preacher. I've never wanted to preach on it. Uh, you just don't even want to think about it, let alone talk about it. Uh, some, though, seem to approach it with sensationalism. There are some religious groups that will put a picture of hell on a billboard or they're standing on a street corner holding up a sign saying, you'll go to hell, and things like that overemphasizing or sensationalizing the biblical topic. But as responsible believers, we simply have to confront it and deal with it the way God wants it or wants it to. It's at the heart of our salvation, recognize that we are saved from this place. And we'll talk about what that place is. There is one song that alludes to it. There's a few that do, but this one talks about the reality of us being saved from it. The song we sang a few weeks ago, simply titled, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. It's in your notes. Written in 1873 by a writer named Philip Paul Bliss. He was kind of a traveling singing evangelist. He would join evangelists of his day and lead the singing, uh, so to speak, a worship leader in different places. Uh, he was traveling one year with his wife to a location where he would be leading the singing, but he was killed in a train crash on the way there, and they found um, a suitcase full of songs that he'd written. He'd written a lot of songs, but this was one song that had been discovered after his death. The first verse is, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love for me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. But know the second verse. I will tell the wondrous story. How my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy. He the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer. His triumphant power I'll tell. How the victory he gives me over sin, death, 
and hell. This song uh, recognized the reality of the victory we have in Jesus. We talk freely about the victory uh, from our sins, that we are freed from our sins. And we've talked about the resurrection, how that through Christ's resurrection we're given victory over death. But do we come to terms with the reality we are also given victory over hell, which was to be a reality if it was not for Jesus' intervention? I believe a couple weeks ago, Thomas in his prayer invoked these words of this hymn into the prayer that we are given victory over hell. But it's a difficult topic to talk about. Peter Kreft, in his book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, which I have, it's very good, Catholic uh, writer and theologian, he writes this about hell. He says, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. The critic's case against it seems very strong, and the believer's duty to believe it seems unbearable. He captured the reality of it quite well in his chapter on hell. This was his opening line as I read it. Um, it is the most difficult to defend. The idea that our God, who we uh, extol the love of, that we describe His great blessing of grace and mercy upon us, uh, would allow people to go to hell. And we, we read about the nature of hell, the awful nature. Just to, to explain that to anyone that wants to be a believer, it's not the first thing we want to talk about. It's not a thing that preachers want to preach about, and you'll hear about it very little today. In fact, there are many preachers that will explain away his existence, or many times will minimize, if not completely change, the nature of what the Bible says about it. It's difficult to defend. It's hard to believe that this is an alternative. And it's almost unbearable to think about, as he says. That when we invoke things about God's mercy, saving us from something, or His grace. Every time we invoke those great and grand themes of our faith, we also understand that we were saved from something that was terribly awful when God sent us His grace. Or when we talk about salvation, salvation from what? Just dropping out of existence? Something greater was on the horizon that we would confront if it wasn't for God's intervention. And something that God Himself wanted to spare us from even more than we wanted to spare ourselves. And that's why He sent His own Son. So, it's important that we come to terms with it. Here's some initial considerations because it is such a difficult topic to wade into biblically and just personally. It is an unpleasant, uncomfortable, but unavoidable subject for believers. If you're going to engage in a daily Bible reading or a yearly Bible reading, you're going to come into the subject of hell. If you're going to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where you're going to read about it the most. The person that spoke about hell the most is Jesus. And at least 11 times in the Gospel accounts, he directly 
references not only hell, but its specific realities. They're just purely, uh, purely awful to consider. Hell is referenced indirectly at least 30 times in the Bible, usually through terms like everlasting punishment or the invoking of God's wrath. Here's one instance, uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, it shows us it's simply a necessary reality to address. Romans 5, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says this, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if we were reconciled, or if, I'm sorry, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Notice here Paul says in verse 9, that we shall be saved from God's wrath. God's wrath in the Bible is simply His punishing anger, where simply the pure nature of Him being God, and Nathaniel led us in these great songs about how great is our God, and I think as we come to terms with God's greatness, we have to see His greatness even in areas that we find unpleasant or we don't quite understand. We embrace His love, and we receive that love, and we talk about the reception of grace, but to understand the other side of God's character, which invokes His anger and His wrath and His necessary punishment of sin, that's something altogether different. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the Apostle Paul said, Consider the goodness and, as the King James says, the severity of God. Or today's New International Version that I use, consider the goodness and the sternness of God. We have to consider all of God's greatness, even the part that we don't like, or that's difficult, or that we may not even agree with. It's still the greatness of God that we have to align ourselves with. But in these initial considerations, understand this, the Bible does not dwell or sensationalize on hell. It does not dwell upon or sensationalize hell. You're not going to find extended teachings on it. You're not going to find a time ever where Jesus was delighted to talk about it. You don't find it mentioned on every page as if that's what's always to be at the forefront of our mind. This is when you travel on an airplane. The, the warning is given about the water landing at the beginning and prepare yourself accordingly and know what to do, but then the flight goes on for your destination where you want to be. And the Bible essentially deals with hell the same way. When it does deal with it, it's very clear on the reality of it, though we still may have questions, but it's dwell on it and it for sure does not sensationalize it. Here are some uncomfortable questions about hell that make it difficult. We're just kind of exploring this difficult topic before we get into some of the text. First of all, what is hell? We hear it talked about. It's used in coarse language. It's used in the movies all the time in a trite way. But what is this reality of hell that is encountered in the Bible? First of all, as best I understand it, it's a real place. We're a real state of existence. Uh, we probably shouldn't think of a specific locality like something that would be 5,000 miles away or even 5 million miles away as if it's some designated location, but it, it appears to be more of a state that includes the idea of a place or a location 
where the worst of all things will be and those who have rejected God will be as well. Let's just look at some of these texts where Jesus invokes this idea of hell. First of all, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Many of these references are in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And they're closely connected to the idea of, the, of what will happen on the judgment day with those who have rejected God. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, uh, we find here, and in fact, the context of hell is almost always in a setting where Jesus is dealing with those who are rejecting him and verse rejecting their father. Here Jesus comes as a savior, and the very people he came to save, the people of promise in his day and time, were rejecting him and discounting the miracles and not coming to terms with the teaching. And that's almost always where these places appear. There's never a place where Jesus just says, well, I want to talk about hell today, <laughs> or something like that. It's in response to rejection. Uh, verse 15, Romans, t- uh, I'm sorry, not Romans, but Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So here this entire town had rejected Jesus. He talks about what it will be like for them on the day of judgment. Verse 28, a familiar text, Jesus says in continuance, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body or soul and body in hell. Here's not saying don't be afraid of someone that can kill you. He says don't be afraid as much of someone that can kill your body as someone who has complete control over not only your body, but your soul, and that only person is God. That's the one of verse 28 here. And destroy both soul and body. And then he talks about the place or the existence of hell. Let's continue on. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 42. Between these two chapters, 10 and 13, he speaks about the day of judgment, at least twice. But then 13, verse 42. We'll begin with verse 40 of Matthew. It says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Then verse 50, starting with verse 49. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 18 now. Chapter 18, verses 8 and 9 of Matthew. Here Jesus is talking about taking sin seriously. He doesn't speak literally about cutting off your hand or cutting out your eye, but he's using it so figuratively because of what could happen if you just reject God or you deal fast and loose with sin and you don't care about being responsible to Him. Verse 8, Matthew 18, it says, If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And this is Jesus. We embrace texts such as, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can sing about those, but to come to terms with these verses or to encounter them in your morning Bible reading, these jar us. They rearrange the spiritual furniture of our lives, and they're shocking, and I think they were intended to be. But Jesus is not dwelling on them, but he's citing them in reference to those who are not dealing with God as they ought to be. Chapter 25 now, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom of prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41 now. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, or thirsty or a stranger being clothed or sick or in prison and did not help you? Verse 45, he will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Here, Jesus repeatedly addresses this alternative for those who have rejected the rule of God in their lives and rejected the responsibility they have in this world. And you can't really explain away these texts. The word hell is from the Hebrew word Gehenna, which referred to a place of refuse outside of Jerusalem. It's where dead bodies were burned, where trash was placed. It was the most awful thing that the Jewish mind could envision. And that's what Jesus invoked, but describing something beyond simply this place of refuge that they were familiar with, but a place that would be the ultimate reality of those who rejected God. 
And in other text, you just have to try real hard and come up with an explanation that doesn't fit what Jesus is saying to explain away hell. It's simply a real place. A second question, though, is why would God create a hell for people? Some really struggle with this. I do. Until you come to terms with the way the biblical text addresses it. Uh, he didn't. He did not create hell for people in the sense of, okay, I'm going to create the most awful of places for the very people I created, hoping some will go there or some have to go there. Notice what Jesus said in verse 46. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell, as I understand it in Scripture, was never originally intended for humanity. It was intended for this spiritual being called the devil or Satan and his angelic force. He has his own angels, which is, again, another topic. It was prepared for him, but some will find that to be their reality or their destination because they followed in the same path. But it was never the idea that God says, okay, I'm going to just prepare this place for people. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's interesting in verse 34, as far as heaven, though, he says, come, you are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. God did prepare a heaven. He did want to live with his people forever. But as far as hell, that was something never intended for people. Next question is, why would God send people there? He doesn't. You don't find verbiage like that. You say, well, I thought it says it right here. He sent, they will go, but not in some arbitrary fashion. Those that will end up there will do so because of their choice in their present life. And a repeated decision, despite all opportunities to do otherwise, to simply... Keep God at arm's length. In this life, though, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Non-believers experience a lot of the beautiful weather just like believers do. And the blessings of this world. Harvest, rain. But hell appears in Scripture to be the full reality of what happens when God is not there. Notice here it says in verse 41, when Jesus talks about what the Father will say. He will say, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is the reality of God's complete absence and the full weight of what that will be. And despite me not fully understanding that or even agreeing that people should be there, it's something that Scripture presents and Scripture is inspired by God that we simply have to come to terms with. Just like with cancer, if you are diagnosed with cancer and the oncologist comes back and they're talking with you, you can't just say, well, I don't believe in cancer. I've never agreed with cancer. And you walk out of the office. You have to come to terms with the cancer and the treatment possibilities and the reality of what they found. You can't just say, I don't agree with it. 
Well, that seems awful that I should get it, and other people should not get it. You just have to come to terms with it. And that's the same thing with this reality of hell. I will look just briefly at the emphasis of, on, the, on hell from a biblical standpoint. First of all, it's an extension of God's wrath. Again, we may not agree with it and fully understand it, but one thing that is clear, it's the extension of God's wrath. And it forces us to come to terms with how much he hates sin. Look at Romans chapter 1. We're just going to hit a few of these verses. I put them in the notes so you can look at uh, the rest of them. We're just going to have to kind of skip over. But look at Romans chapter 1. Notice how the Apostle Paul begins verse 18. He talked in verse 16 about he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But notice what the salvation is all about. It's saving us from wrath. That is God's punishment upon sin. Verse 18 now, Romans 1. Uh, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are what? Without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal, the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, uh, the sinful desires of their hearts, a sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they may do what, is, they ought, not to, what ought not to be done. They become filled with envy, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We'll just pause here.
what has been described here is behavior that even though our society is tolerant of, God has never been tolerant of and never will be. And Paul simply says God's wrath is against those who do these things. And repeatedly, it's talked about those who know better and they know God's rules, they know God's existence, but yet they do something that's the opposite of what he wants. And what Scripture is telling us about hell is it's an extension of God's wrath that is, even though we're quite comfortable with these things, and we excuse them and we tolerate them, God cannot and does not. So even though we struggle with hell, we have to understand it's part of what he sees about what we're comfortable with. And I say that in a general sense, societally. He sees sin far worse than we do. He sees rebellion against him far more heinous than we do. And that's what we have to come to terms with. As Isaiah said in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, that God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if we're going to sing how great is our God, we have to also understand how great is God's view of sin compared to how we see it. And just come to terms with it whether we agree with God's view or not. Secondly, as far as what's emphasized about hell, it's described in the worst of terms. Matthew 25 that we read earlier, 31 through 46. It's a place of pain, darkness, fire, eternal punishment, and ultimately separation from God where God will say on the judgment day, depart from me to those who have rejected him during their life. Some wrestle with what kind of torture chamber is this of hell? And that's why many reject it. Because it appears God is torturing people. Some will point to, uh, well, if there's darkness and fire, how can the two exist? Doesn't fire illuminate? How can there be darkness as well? There may be room here for Jesus describing the nature of hell in the worst possible ways that we can imagine. Abject darkness that scares us to death. Fire. He may be just invoking earthly things that we understand to describe the nature of hell. And these realities of fire and darkness and pain are just figurative terms, if you will, to describe something I want to say is this worse. This is just the farthest we can go as far as what we can mentally evaluate. So my understanding, it's either worse, and just the worst things we can imagine are being described, or it's exactly what's being said. Either way, I don't want to come close to them. I don't envision one I can live with and one I can't. Some say, well, I'm just going to drop out of existence. Well, what Scripture's saying is existence without God's presence at all is worse than anything you could imagine. Again, it says, depart from me. God is not present. It is more heinous and awful than we can imagine. Either way, literal terms or figurative, hell is described in the worst of terms. 
and it's eternal in existence. Second Thessalonians. We'll look at this more next week, but as we step out of the Gospels, Paul writes in the second letter to the Christians in Thessalonica who are being persecuted for their faith. He talks about God's eventual punishment of those who are persecuting them. But he describes the nature of this eternal punishment. Verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Notice these next words. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. Let's pause here. That's the same language that Jesus was using to describe the judgment day, the coming of God when the powerful angels accompanying Him, the Son is returning. Verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day that He comes to be glorified in all His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Verse 9, Paul writes about everlasting destruction. That is the state of punishment, if you will, or separation from God that simply does not end. It's everlasting. And this directly stands in contrast to the idea that, that many have, including many so-called Christian teachers, that we just fall out of existence. That we're just gone. It's called annihilation, the idea that we just drop out of life. Here are the pictures of something everlasting or ongoing that simply doesn't end. And it includes what Jesus says as far as being shut out from the presence of the Lord. It's eternal. We don't understand that in a time and space dimension. We have clocks and watches. We're always measuring things by time, years and hours. This never ends. There's nowhere in Scripture that says you can change someone's state after judgment or that after they spend a certain amount of time there, they can be paroled and go to another state or something like that. It's simply an eternal experience. I want to end with these three applications. What do we do with this terrible reality? Three things. First, allow the thought of hell to motivate you when nothing else does. That seems to be how it's used in Scripture. Jesus never revels in it. He never brings it up first. It's always in the context of someone just putting their hand in the face of God saying, I don't want to do what you say to do. Or I don't want you telling me what to do. I want to live my own life. That's when it's invoked. Sometimes we need that. If we're engaged in activities and we're not dealing with them as we should, that God said should be not, not part of our life. We're living a, a life of rebellion in general. Many times, just the thought of hell will redirect us. Unlike anything else, if the love is God, if the love of God is not working, let the fear of hell work. That seems to be why we're being told about it. 
Because sometimes we need that. We're at the end of the year at school right now. There's a lot of students who are not taking graduation seriously enough. Sometimes I have to sit down with them and tell them, well, if you don't graduate this year, here's what it's going to mean for you. You're going to come back next year, and the juniors, who <laughs> they're going to be seniors, and they're going to wonder why you're still in school, <laughs> why you're still here for a fifth year when you should have graduated. And that social reality of them it gets their attention, and all of a sudden they're now coming to after-school programs and things like that. But it took me saying that to get their attention. Hell seems to have the same effect. Use the thought of hell to motivate you when nothing else does. Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he talked about knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And he had just mentioned the judgment. It works. Number two, Remain faithful to Christ because falling away has eternal consequences. This one I want to read. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. Some texts about hell are descriptive of those who came into a relationship of being in Christ and experiencing all the joy and the, and the state of being forgiven, but yet they walk back on that. And they go back to the very situation they left. The writer of Hebrews says this about that choice. We deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of true three witnesses. How much more severely do you think those deserve to be punished who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, who have treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sa that sanctified them, and who have insulted the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Allow the thought of hell to keep you faithful again when nothing else seems to be working. The consequences for believers that turn back on God after experiencing the joy of salvation, it could not be more dreadful. In fact, that's the word that is used by the biblical writer. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Then finally, allow the fear of hell to help you take God seriously. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer says this in verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God or serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. These texts about eternal punishment and hell are designed to get us to sit up straight. Spiritually. And not to live a half-committed Christian life. Or not to let things go that God says, you need to address that. But instead to be there as it should be there. To keep us constantly moving forward, focused on things that need to be corrected. And going forward instead of backwards. Backwards.
Don't think about hell every day. Don't wake up putting that on the top of your list of things to think. Scripture does not tell us to do that, and that's not the way it's placed here. But it is placed in strategic spots. And it should be in a strategic spot in our life when we need it. But other than that, may we embrace the grace and love of God where God loved us so much, He did everything that we might not be there. Because otherwise, our choice is to be there because of rejecting Him. And even if someone says, I don't agree with that, I don't see all this. Again, you don't have to agree with cancer. You just have to deal with it. Or else it will deal with you. And that's the same way hell is presented in Scripture. We're going to sing a song as we kind of ripped open the band-aid this morning. Painful. Come to terms with it. Switch gears now. Exactly as the Bible does. To sing about the God who sent His Son to save us from this place. And who sent His Son to allow us to live a different life. A life of holiness, a life of purity, a life of honoring Him so that we might be with Him forever. We've been saved from something. And we talked about what we've been saved from. Saved from our sins, from death and hell. And that's why the writer Philip Bliss said, Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. We've been rescued from the consequences of our own choices. Let's praise God in these final moments for His salvation in our lives and in the lives of others. We are free from this fear. Let's stand and sing this song to encourage us.